1: Hello, I'm Brandon Perna, host of That's Good Sports, a 10-minute-ish daily NFL comedy podcast. Have you ever wished for a crappy version of the Daily Show, but only about the NFL? then first and foremost, I implore you to dream much bigger. Secondly, I would recommend subscribing to That's Good Sports. Every weekday, I will be giving you NFL news, telling questionable jokes, and swearing just enough so you won't ever be able to listen with your kids in the room or car. I don't ask for a lot, but if you don't subscribe on iTunes, my wife said she will leave me. Thanks, and I look forward to putting my voice in your ear holes.
2: What's up, Roto-B? Hi, everyone. Welcome to Rotoviz Radio, brought to you by FFB Cast and MyBookie. I'm Ryan Collinsworth, filling in for Dave this week, and I'm joined by Matthew Friedman, the editor-in-chief of Fantasy Labs, part of the Action Network. Funnily enough, I had the pleasure of working with Friedman at Action and Labs last season. Matt, how have you been, man? Uh, I'm good. Uh, It's
1: good to see you at at Rotoviz. you are doing some great content over there uh as obviously the the rest
2: of the staff is uh so yeah uh, it's good to be on the show with you absolutely man let's go ahead and kick things off with our money play of the week sponsored by FFB cast this week that player is Buccaneers wide receiver Mike Evans Evans was a pretty popular pick around the industry to rebound this week after a slow start uh, to 2019 But no one necessarily expected a showing of the magnitude that he put up in week three against the Giants. He hauled in eight receptions for 190 yards, three touchdowns on 15 targets, all of which are season highs. However, Evans' rebound came at the subtle expense to Chris Godwin, who only snagged three passes for 40 yards on four targets. So the question is, Matt, do you foresee Evans and Godwin trading fantasy outings like this the rest of the season or do you believe Tampa Bay and Bruce Arians will eventually develop a more consistent two-headed monster like their division mates in Atlanta
1: yeah so I think it will eventually be uh, more consistent in terms of how usage is split but we should remember that uh, this explosion came against the Giants uh, who right now have what looks like the worst pass defense in the league they were summarily decimated by the Cowboys in in week one. So they're just, they're not very good right now. Um, And so I don't think we can simply take the production that Mike Evans got and Godwin got in week three and kind of like split that between the two of them. Like, I think eventually we'll see something pretty close to an even split in opportunities that they get per game. But obviously, um, like on a per game basis, what they get will be nothing close to what happened in week three.
2: Yeah, I tend to agree with you pretty wholeheartedly. Nonetheless, Mike Evans was the guy who happened to pop in week three, which makes him our FFB cast money play of the week. You need to check out FFB cast for league-specific custom podcasts covering your fantasy league. It's a great way to keep your league mates engaged, add a whole new level of fun to your fantasy season, and really make your league unique. Once again, that's FFB Cast. Providing fantasy league specific podcasts covering your teams and your fantasy matchups. All right, Matt, uh, in the spirit of me hosting RotoViz Radio for the first time, I thought we might open up our podcast today with a segment on some more first timers this week at the quarterback position. So we had Kyle Allen filling in for the injured Cam Newton down in Carolina. Uh, and he led the Panthers to a resounding road victory at Arizona. We had Luke Falk filling in for the Jets, who didn't look quite as good as Kyle Allen, to say the least. And then we finally had Mason Rudolph of the Pittsburgh Steelers filling in for Big Ben. But none of those three could hold a candle to what Daniel Jones accomplished this week with the New York Giants. He threw for 336 yards, two passing touchdowns, while under some pretty heavy pressure, especially in the second half, he also added two touchdowns rushing. And I, for one, was pretty surprised, all things considered, by his accuracy and his average depth of target, which seemed to be in stark contrast from what I personally saw in the preseason. Matt, did you expect Danny Dimes to look this good this early, or are we jumping the gun a bit here against a mediocre Bucks defense.
1: Well, first of all, uh hall of fame transition to start this segment. So congratulations on that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but second, second of all, uh, man, it's, it's interesting. Like I think, okay. So on the one hand, I think people are jumping the gun a little bit because this did come against Tampa Bay. That said, this was way better than anyone expected. Uh, especially considering the opinions that people had of him when he was entering the NFL. And I'm including myself in that. You know, I didn't think highly of him at all. He had numbers in college that were pretty bad. Um, His accuracy was not good. Of course, he was playing behind an offensive line that didn't give him a lot of time. And he did have uh, good rushing totals. So the one thing that you could kind of hang your hat on with him entering the league was that he would give you a elevated floor because he had some rushing uh, upside built into his weekly projections. But man, he looked great in the preseason uh and that kind of brought me around on him a little bit but even if you were bullish on him because of what he did in the preseason you still would not have expected this you know he played i mean i think he, like big boy football you know like he did it without the benefit of saquon barkley out there for a lot of the game uh he was standing tough in the pocket he took too many sacks but that's just something that rookie quarterbacks tend to do um i think he'll get better at that eventually and uh, he had an, a nose for when to run, you know, had 28 yards on four carries, two of those turned into touchdowns. I think he did like basically everything right, you know, I mean, he, he helped the team get back and, and get the, the victory coming from behind. So uh, pretty impressive uh, performance all the way around. Granted, again, it came against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, um, but there's a significant upside with
2: him moving forward. Yes, a general bullish outlook, especially by comparison to how everybody was feeling around May of this year on Daniel (laughs) Jones, for sure. Uh, And as Matt referenced in there, Saquon Barkley did suffer an injury in this game, high ankle sprain, officially diagnosed with a prognosis where he will be out four to eight weeks. So if you're a Barkley owner, or honestly, even if you're not a Barkley owner, Wayne Gallman could be worth a look on waivers this week in particular, if he's still available in your leagues, if you weren't lucky and snagged him last week.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So from Daniel Jones, let's pivot back over to one more of the uh, new quarterback starters that I want to talk about here. And that's, that's Mason Rudolph in Pittsburgh. He went 14 to 27, 174 yards, two touchdowns, one interception, nothing real fancy at all about that. But the real strong implication in Pittsburgh was how Juju Smith-Schuster was going to perform without Ben Roethlisberger as his quarterback. You know, Entering this season, a lot of us at Rotoviz and I think you as well, had high expectations for Juju, filling the shoes of A.B., especially in that particular offense. The upside was tremendous, and then it seems like the ceiling gets a hard cap placed on it with Big Ben out. So week three, we finally get at least some preliminary answers of what to expect from him moving forward. He gets seven targets, catches three of those for 81 yards and a touchdown. I don't know how much of an answer that is long term for his median expectation, but how have you adjusted Juju leading up to week three and then based on what you saw in week three?
1: Yeah, so the Steelers offense wasn't great in weeks one and two, and so you you had to adjust them down a little bit. Um, but I mean, I think we can expect from Juju something similar to what we've seen. Uh basically sort of like the median outcome of you know the first three games. Uh I think you lock him in for anywhere from, you know, seven to ten targets per game. Um, but I don't think those those are going to be highly efficient targets. And he's probably not going to have, uh, as many opportunities to convert those targets into touchdowns. Um, just because this offense isn't as good. So I think at the beginning of the season, I was viewing him as, you know, like potentially the wide receiver one now, like low end wide receiver one, uh, I think in a best case scenario, but probably more realistically, like a wide receiver two. Um, so that's, it's not great. Um, And maybe I was too bullish on him, like as my like Bayesian prior to begin with. Like that's that's something that's very possible. But I think he still has like seventy to ninety yards as something that is pretty realistic each game. But I think his ceiling is really capped in that he's not going to have those eruption games where he goes off for like one hundred and fifty yards and two touchdowns. Like that that just isn't something that's nearly as realistic anymore.
2: Yeah, I as somebody who has uh, quite a few shares of Juju across redraft leagues in particular this year, I've already tested the market waters, kind of evaluating how much value he still holds in the trade market. Um, because, I mean, in my, in my mind over the course of the last week and a half, I haven't been able to make up my mind if I wanted to sell him, I wanted to hold him and see how this shook out for a couple more weeks. But then, you know, as soon as I started testing the waters in the trade market i was like ah no i'm not going to be able to get value back for this i think i got to ride this out do you more or less feel the same way
1: yeah absolutely uh 100% agree i think it's going to be a situation where um no one is going to to price him at what he's worth now everyone will be thinking of him in this like worst case scenario type of lens so yeah you just have to ride him out and maybe if he gets hot uh, you can trade him, but at that point, I still don't think it's really worth trading him.
2: Uh, I, I think you just have to keep him. Yep, I tend to agree with you, Matt. All right, let's stick with pass catchers for the moment and head on over to Green Bay and Devontae Adams. Adams, obviously, the wide receiver one in PPR last season. And to be honest, he may, I mean, arguably, he was the most consistent fantasy producer at any position. All season last year, he scored at least 16 fantasy points in every single game he played. Unfortunately, he already has two games this season with under 10 PPR points and has zero touchdowns through three games after scoring 13 last year. Green Bay is obviously making the transition with Matt LaFleur now calling plays. Um, and going into the season, some people were concerned about that potential fit with Aaron Rodgers and the rest of the passing offense. We may have expected some level of regression in general for Devontae Adams, although it's hard to say what his true uh, mean expectancy actually was entering this season, given his limited sample with a healthy Aaron Rodgers in his career and his production relative to his relatively low volume. But now that we're actually seeing the Packers offense on the field, are you concerned about this slow start from Adams and or Aaron Rodgers and the rest of the offense?
1: Yeah, uh, I absolutely am. I think it's a situation that's kind of similar to Juju's um, just in terms of having to reevaluate him. I think you lower his ceiling, although it's different in that I think you can probably still get something of value for Adams. So, I mean, it's a, it's a similar situation in that like both players have reduced ceilings, but with one guy, there's like this obvious reason as to why and, and anyone can see like the market can see that there's a, a clear distinction. But I don't know if the market can see with the Packers yet um, because they've won their games. I don't know if the market is taking into account that this offense really is not what it used to be. I think people are kind of assuming that it will improve and it probably will. But even if it does, I don't know if that means that things get much better for Adams. I think it's it's a reduced situation for him all the way around. He's had double-digit touchdowns each of the past three years. I think he's going to have fewer red zone opportunities. They're going to look to run the ball more just in general, but then also when they get closer to the goal line. And uh, MVS is someone who I think will steal significant usage from Adams. So uh, I would be looking to trade him if you had him. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's an unfortunate situation with him. I think he goes from being a top three wide receiver to a, a low-end wide receiver one for the rest of the year.
2: Mm. So some poor news to start off this segment, at least at the wide receiver position. So, you know, Juju's upside, maybe a little bit capped moving forward, maybe a lot capped. It kind of depends. And Adams with a slow start to start the year. But I'll tell you one guy who has not started slow, and that's Darren Waller tight end for the Oakland Raiders. This week, he casually put up a 13-reception, 134-yard outing. He had 14 targets, which is kind of ridiculous for a tight end, especially with such a limited statistical background as Waller has. He was a, a pretty hot commodity as a breakout candidate before the season. Some people bought the hype, some people didn't because of his relatively late breakout age. But now, three games in, he's got 26 receptions, 267 yards. He's coming off of a tremendous game. My question is, should fantasy owners be looking to sell high on Waller at his, I mean, objectively, his peak value right now, or continue to ride the wave? Because if we, if we regress his current production based on the range of outcomes that we may have expected before the season maybe he's in the, the conversation for a tight end seven to 12. That's how I kind of view it at this point. But based on his actual production and track record this season, his value is obviously bouncing way, way ahead of that. This is an offense that produced a career year from Jared Cook last season, which ends a little bit of, of weight to what Waller is doing. Where do you stand on his prospects and his fantasy value right now? Yeah, I'm really into Darren Waller.
1: Um, one of the, I think, biggest mistakes of my season so far um, has been not going after Waller hard enough in a few leagues. Um, because he was available late, you know, depending on the the format, you could have gotten him off of waivers. Um, but yeah. He's really intriguing to me and I know that he's listed as a tight end and he's he has played the majority of his snaps in line so he is a tight end but he's also seen a significant number of his snaps in the slot and also out wide. Like I think he's basically a wide receiver who's playing tight end. And and, and that's really what he was as a prospect. Um you know, he was a big bodied guy coming out of the Georgia Tech offense who uh, had been productive in college, but um, in a very run heavy offense, uh, you know, that's very gimmicky. Um, I mean, apologies to like college football purists who don't view uh, the triple option as a gimmick, but, uh, at at a minimum, it's not something that is known to be conducive to creating NFL receivers, uh, in a, uh, consistent manner. So anyway, there was the situation of like how to project him to the NFL. Uh, and it it took him a while and he had to change positions, uh, you know, and he suffered uh, an injury, which set him back, but man, it's, it's pretty impressive what he's done. And so like I'm viewing him less as a tight end and more just as a big bodied slot receiver who is dominating the way that like old school Marcus Colston did early in his career. Uh, he's leading pretty easily the Raiders in targets in receptions in yards. Uh, he doesn't have a touchdown yet, but like, you know, that's coming, so I like I'm I'm riding this wave. What actually is impressive to me is that he's done as well as he's done and he's still yet to score a touchdown because, you know, that is coming um, the the targets like I think that usage is pretty consistent. He's not going to get 14 every game but i mean i think you lock him in for a minimum of 7 like that that seems pretty reasonable i'm pretty bullish on him moving forward especially because this this team i mean tyrell williams i respect him but after williams they just they don't have other pass catching options and this is a team that's going to need to throw the ball quite a bit each game so waller is totally locked in for me i mean do do you have opinions there what do you think
2: i mean i i tend to agree i'm a little more skittish on you know uh, pronouncing him as a steady tight end one contributor for the entire rest of the season just because i prefer to have offensive weapons in offenses that i feel are um what's the word competent yeah, and and uh, not bad. Yeah, yeah, not bad. Um, it's I mean, it's kind of like you know Sean Siegel says, you know, a guy can be a, a fantastic athlete, but is he a good football player? Similarly, uh, you know, a guy could be a fantastic football player, but is he on a good team or at least a competent team? Um, the one thing in Waller's favor that I've personally been very impressed by is the fact that he has secured and consolidated that target share away from other players that could have vied for it. So, I mean, for example, Josh Jacobs, he didn't have the most profound receiving history from his collegiate career, but he was no slouch, but he only has two receptions the entire season. Jalen Richard has a pretty solid history as a receiving back going into this year, as does DeAndre Washington, and neither of them have really factored into the passing game meaningfully because Waller's target share is just so ridiculous in that offense. So I can't exactly ignore that, you know?
1: Yeah, there are maybe four or five tight ends I would easily take above Waller for the rest of the year. Like, that might sound really aggressive um, from the perspective of Waller, but obviously I prefer the big three to Waller. I prefer Mark Andrews to Waller. Um, After that, like, I might prefer Waller over anyone else. Like, I I mean, I, I that's I'm sure that's aggressive, but um, I don't know. I kind of want to be ahead of the curve. And I think people are still a little bit skeptical of Waller, but um, I'm pretty on board with him.
2: All right. Let's uh, let's hang out in the AFC West for a little while here and move over to the Kansas City Chiefs. McCole Hardman and Demarcus Robinson both put up starting fantasy performances again for the second straight week with Tyreek Hill out. Hardman caught an 83-yard catch-and-run touchdown, and Robinson added a touchdown of his own on 43 yards receiving. Through two weeks, this their combined stat line is completely audacious for two guys who were not projected to see any starting snaps at the beginning of the season. They have combined, for 15 receptions, 373 yards, and five touchdowns in two weeks of action. Uh, it's just... It's mind-boggling to me, and it underlies a really strong point that it's a good fantasy strategy to shackle yourself to any weapon that Patrick Mahomes is throwing to, period. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. Also, pretty remarkably, Hardman and Robinson have have produced this way the last two weeks. Even though Travis Kelsey and Sammy Watkins' roles are pretty firmly entrenched, they are still getting theirs. Yeah. Uh they're not drastically cutting into what we would have expected from Kelsey or Watkins, which is maybe the most staggering part of this whole development. So the question is what happens when Tyreek Hill does return to the offense between Hardman and Robinson. Do you prefer one over the other in terms of who is more likely to retain or hold on at least to his, his fantasy value when Hill comes back to the offense or Put differently, do you believe the Chiefs offense is dynamic enough to sustain a fourth pass catcher in fantasy, which was almost historically unprecedented?
1: Yeah, so uh, I prefer Robinson of the two because I think he's going to continue to play uh, when Tyreek Hill returns. Um, Robinson has been a starter, but he was sort of like in the Chris Conley role of someone who's out there and you're just expecting him to take up space and run routes, but really not see action. Um, but with Tyreek Hill gone, that you know, created a void where Robinson was able to get action and Hardman as the, I think, direct Tyreek Hill replacement was also able to uh, get a pretty significant piece of the opportunity pie. So uh, both guys, as you mentioned, have produced, but I prefer Robinson moving forward because I think he has at a minimum, the ability to play snaps when Hill returns. And I don't know if that's the case for Hardman, but whether he's actually able to um, maintain his role moving forward. Uh, and, and I think it's the same question with Hardman. Uh, I, I think Hill will return to something close to what he had before. Um, but I think because Robinson and Hardman have been so dynamic, they will have like a, a vestigial remnant of the production that they've had while he's gone. And so I think what that will look like is – games where Robinson does nothing. And then he has like 70 yards in a touchdown. And so that's, that's fantasy viable from like a, a per game perspective, uh, and from like a peak perspective, but not viable in terms of like weekly consistency, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, no, that's that's almost exactly how I feel about it is that, you know, you can you can catch lightning in a bottle a couple different times this year. I think with potentially either of them, you prefer Robinson. And I, I think your rationale for that is uh, is pretty solid, but I'm not relying on them in any respect to be a viable flex play outside of just an, an upside dart throw in a given week.
1: Yeah, I think that makes sense.
2: All right, um, finishing off the AFC West, let's head over to L.A. and the Chargers. I mean, you know, you and Dave discussed him last week, but Keenan Allen and his target share is continuing to impress. I mean, he's always been a high-volume player, but he has ratcheted it up to the next level. 13 receptions, 183 yards, and two touchdowns in his best game of the season, and he was already crushing it this year. A season-high 17 targets. For the season, he has <laughs> yeah. twenty nine receptions, four hundred four yards, three touchdowns, and forty-two targets. Matt, he's averaging fourteen targets a game.
1: He has more receptions than most players have targets, which is just unbelievable. Um, you know, like I have to quote unquote take the L on uh Keenan Allen. Cause I like, I've just historically been down on him cause I don't think he's a very efficient player. I think he's a very volume based guy, but when he's getting the volume and then he has those games where he actually is efficient, uh, everything just explodes for him. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think we can assume he's going to see 14 targets per game moving forward. Um, that's super aggressive, but I think he's locked in for like that nine to 12 target range, which is incredibly valuable. Um, So, I I mean, you, if you have him, you're obviously starting him. Um, I think he's very intriguing for cash games uh, in DFS. And in terms of like player props, I think you basically are pounding the over on his reception total. And, and I, I say this as someone who tends not to bet on the over. Uh, the unders tend to be the sharp side, but. I think the overs come into play when there are players who have uh, changing situations that the the books maybe haven't taken into account yet. So like rookies, for instance, uh, some of their overs tend to be good. And I think Keenan Allen is in a situation like this where he just has uh, this massive surge in volume. And I think the books probably aren't adjusting for it enough at this point. So uh, until like Allen proves otherwise that he's uh, not going to be getting double digit targets per game,
2: I think I'm looking to bet the over on his reception total each week. Yeah, Matt, you, uh, you teed me up for that one because my bookie is the place to bet on football every weekend. They have the best bonuses and prop bets like the one that Friedman just advised in the business. Live in-game betting on every NFL game, rewarding player perks, fantasy over-unders, and they're even matching deposits up to $1,000 when you use the program code ROTOVIZ. Where you bet is just as important as the teams you bet on. That's why you need to head over to mybookie.ag and use the promo code ROTOVIZ. You bet, you win, they play. A few of us on this show use Harry's Razors. If you visit their website, you can check out all the different shave sets and face care products they have available. Join the 10 million who have tried Harry's. Claim your special offer by going to harrys.com backslash blue wire. Why try Harry's? Harry's founders were two regular guys tired of getting ripped off and paying for overpriced razors. Harry's makes quality, durable blades at a fair price at just $2 per blade. And if you don't love your shave, let them know and they'll give you a full refund. This summer, refresh your wallet and your face with a Harry's trial set. It comes with a weighted ergonomic handle for an easy grip, five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade for a close shave, rich lathering shave gel that will leave you smelling great, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy on the go. Listeners of this show can redeem their trial set at harrys.com backslash bluewire. Make sure you go to harrys.com backslash bluewire to redeem your offer and let them know I sent you to help support the show. All right, Matt, let's dive right back in, and we'll start with your hometown team, the Dallas Cowboys. Kellen Moore's new offensive system has been... Really interesting to kind of break down early on this season, and it seems to have worked wonders with Dak Prescott and the passing game, albeit against relatively weak opposing defenses to start the year, but this is the NFL. Anytime you start 3-0, I think you'll take it. This last week, both Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard rushed for over 100 yards, Both of them saw over 15 opportunities each, so the volume and production is clearly there in the Dallas backfield. But there's been an interesting development, I would say, schematically in the offense, where through three weeks, Zeke only has seven total targets. I mean, last season, for context, he had 95 through 15 games. At his current pace, he's only on track for 35 this season. That is a massive drop off and in PPR formats in particular that could play a major role if it stays this way for the rest of the season when you look at the rest of the backfield Pollard included who has a phenomenal receiving profile from college the targets simply aren't going to the backs at this point do you think that's kind of a a variance issue or a matchup issue early on or that's more systematic given how much 11 and 10 personnel Kellen Moore is running
1: Yeah, this is a great question and uh, I think important to think about. So let's think about the situation last year with Zeke. Um, For the first half of the season, uh, first seven games, they didn't have Amari Cooper. Uh, They really didn't have an established number one receiver. So Zeke was getting a lot of the work there. Uh, And then also Jason Witten was gone. When Cooper came, the offense improved, um, but they were still playing in a lot of close games. They were winning them, but they were still playing in close games. Uh, and so there was still the opportunity for Zeke to accumulate a lot of targets in those games. Now, what we've seen, uh, you know, Cooper has continued to be very dominant as the number one receiver. Michael Gallup, uh, has, you know, improved in his second season, uh, Randall Cobb is, I think, uh, if he's not an improvement on Cole Beasley in the slot, he's a, a very competent replacement. So he's holding down those targets. And then you have Tony Pollard as someone who could steal targets that otherwise would have gone to Zeke. And then the biggest thing is that they've been playing from ahead for a lot of their, their games. Uh, and so they haven't needed to pass the ball to Zeke. Uh, and then maybe as you mentioned, it's just a feature of this offense, uh, that they're going to pass Even like in neutral game script, they're going to pass just a little bit less to their running backs because there are some things they do that still really annoy me. Like they're they're running too much on first down still. They're still doing that. But um, there are things that they are doing better. And so, for instance, it is more analytically sound to pass the ball further down the field, right? Passes to wide receivers and tight ends are more efficient than passes to running backs. And so uh, maybe it's a feature of this offense that if they are going to throw the ball, they're going to look to push the ball down the field and get it to Amari or Gallup or Cobb or Devin Smith, as opposed to Ezekiel Elliott, who would be catching it much closer to the line of scrimmage. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it's it's something real that Zeke is not going to see the volume through the air that he saw previously. And and that and not even to admit that Jason, Jason Witten has returned. Right. That's like another thing uh, where those targets that could have gone to Zeke this year. They're not. They're just they're going to win instead. So, yeah, it's a very real thing that Zeke is not going to get the target volume this year that he had last year.
2: Yeah. I mean, I mean, you made a lot of good points that all supported that general position right there. But dating back to last season, it's totally possible that his target volume from last year was inflated due to game script and relatively low um low competition for those touches, all these considered, uh, yeah. especially compared to what the roster looks like right now, on top of the fact that, as you noted, the scheme may be limiting him. I I can't believe that I'm suggesting this about a player of Zeke's caliber, but I'm, I'm pretty concerned that he is not going to return his appropriate draft capital uh, to a lot of redraft players this year in PPR formats because of this. Um, and, and it also makes him a little more fragile in the way we think of you know the Derrick Henrys and Marlon Max and and other players like that who don't have steady receiving production as part of their weekly profile you know their their floor is lower than you would think it is because of that
1: yeah i mean the one thing i would say is i i kind of disagree a little bit on that point and it's it's not i think the thing with Zeke is that he doesn't have as high of a ceiling but he still has a really high floor. Mm. And if you drafted him, you know, with a, a top five pick this year, I think that's what you're hoping for. Obviously you want the ceiling games too, but at a minimum you want the security that he gives. And uh, I I think we can throw out a lot of what happened in week one because he was working his way back and he still wasn't playing his full complement of snaps uh, in week two. And then in week three, of course, um, you know, game script, he didn't have to play all much, all that much in the fourth quarter, but he still had, you know, over a hundred yards in each of the past two games. Um, easily could have scored a touchdown last week. It just didn't happen. But um, I think he's he has the highest opportunity floor, I think, out of any player in the league. Um, and that includes, I think, even like, well, yeah, I think that even still includes uh, like Christian McCaffrey and Alvin Kamara. Like I think Zeke is, is right there with them in terms of the number of touches per game he's going to get. So I think he will disappoint in that he's not going to provide the ceiling games, but I think he's still provides value uh, with the draft pick that you invested because he has a really high floor.
2: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, his his sheer opportunity and the fact that ever since he even entered the league, he's been efficient with his touches, especially by comparison to his peers. I think those two factors, you're right, maybe more than enough to compensate for a potentially depressed receiving workload this year. So from one public team in the Cowboys to another public team in the Patriots and from – a workhorse in zeke to a backfield mess all things considered up in new england <laughs> all right here we go um there's there's a bit, quite a bit to unpack here i don't want to spend too much time on new england but here goes man okay so for week three james white did not play he and his wife were expecting the birth of their child and so he was held out of the game for obvious reason sony michelle uh I don't, know, I don't know another way of saying it. He performed horribly again. He rushed nine times for 11 yards. He did have a touchdown, but that's really the only positive thing about uh, his stat line from week three. And it's particularly concerning to me because the Patriots were a huge home favorite. I mean, an RB1 as a huge home favorite against a hapless team like the Jets when the defense is playing that good and you give me 11 yards. I don't have any shares in Michelle, but if I was an owner, I'd be pretty irritated with that so the absence of of james white plus sony michelle's underperformance led to yet another week with rex burkhead popping up on my timeline uh and i'm just like i can't believe i'm still seeing this guy like after last year and how he kind of you know ducked his head back down in the gopher hole so to speak i'm I'm somewhat surprised by his PPR production through three weeks and how consistently he's being used. I didn't expect to be asking you this at this point in the season, but is Burkhead legit in this offense? Uh, Yeah. I mean, amazingly, I think he is.
1: Um, but it's just, it's a tough situation where anyone that the Patriots decide they're going to give the ball to is legit. And you just kind of have to hope that you're on the right running back. Um, but I think Burkhead has, has proven, uh, you know, in his, his three years in new England, even if he's not consistent, um, he is, uh, this might sound counterintuitive. Even if he's not consistent, he's like reliable when they use him. Um, like he doesn't make mistakes and he is versatile. Uh, and so if they want a guy out there who can do a little bit of everything, he's better at running than James White is. And he's certainly better at at catching the ball than Sony Michelle is. And unlike uh, Damian Harris, he's a veteran. You know, like he he knows the scheme. He knows how to prepare for games. Uh, So he's sort of like the perfect, like, Belichickian back. Um, So, yeah, I don't think you can – he's never going to be the guy that is the lead back or who, you know, like goes off for 120 yards in a game. Um, But if he's out there – and it looks like he's going to be out there – If he's out there, he has a really good chance of going, you know, from like 40 to 75 yards per game, um, with some, you know, decent touchdown equity because the Patriots are just so good and they get in the red zone so often. So he's not someone I would want to trot out there as my like running back to even, but um, yeah, if he's there and it's a good matchup for the Patriots, like they're at home and they're favored, um, yeah, uh, slot him into your flex. Like, you could do a lot worse than that.
2: Yeah, I, I hate to beat a dead horse here, but I I agree with you. I'd, I'd be starting Burkhead over Michelle at this point. And I know that that seems a little bit hot takey, but I also don't understand the persistence and endurance of Michelle hype this deep into his career based on the statistical sample that we've gotten from him on the pro level I mean, his his draft capital notwithstanding, I understand that side of the argument. I don't see how you can objectively look at Michelle's performance history as a Patriot and see anything other than a new iteration of – a previous paradigm New England has rolled out with guys like Stephen Ridley and LeGarrette Blunt in the past. Michelle is a different athlete than those guys, but the paradigm is similar as an early down rusher with extremely limited receiving acumen in the offense because the short yardage passing game is already accounted for. I considered throwing this up on Twitter, but it's not exactly on brand for me. If you gave me... Blind game logs for Frank Gore, Carlos Hyde, and Sony Michelle this season. I swear to you, I would not be able to differentiate them.
1: Uh, I would, because the worst games would be Sony Michelle, (laughs) which is like the saddest thing. It's, I I mean, the the thing that was so unreal – about them selecting him in the first round was, one, you just kind of assumed that the Patriots didn't do stuff like that. But two, if they were going to be selecting a back that early, he would be a guy who at least could catch the ball out of the backfield. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is just something entirely that Michelle cannot do. So, yeah, I mean, 2.4 yards per attempt so far this year, um, pretty much a worst-case scenario for him and anyone who invested in him.
2: Well, we got a couple more worst case or borderline worst case scenarios upcoming. So hold your nose a bit here. Uh, But before we get to those situations, I mean, while we're on the Patriots, Matt, (laughs) uh, I would be remiss in having the privilege to speak with you today if I did not give you an opportunity to share some comments with your people about the most recent Antonio Brown release and also his re-enrollment at Central Michigan as an undergrad student.
1: Uh, well, uh, congratulations to him on re-enrolling. Um, I, I think it's wonderful for people to, to go to college and for uh, you know people to continue uh, you know to have education as they advance in life. So uh, great for him there. Uh, really unfortunate the way that those circumstances played out for him. I mean it's this, it's been hard throughout this whole Antonio Brown thing to to go full on with the, the victory um, because like I honestly think like there are like mental issues, that he has, um, like I think this is something of a breakdown, and then also like uh, the stuff that has to do with the accusations of the sexual assault stuff is just like uh, you don't, I don't know. It's a, it's a weird situation where you don't want to be like celebrating around that. Um, but yeah, it's it's too bad for him. It's too bad for the Patriots. It's too bad for the league. Uh, too bad for everyone associated with this you know, like in a best case scenario, I would kind of hope that he could get stuff back together um, because Antonio Brown at his best was an incredibly entertaining player. Um, But I, I think he's clearly not at his best and I think his career is probably over.
2: I hate to say it as someone who was a fan of his game, I'm not a Steelers fan by any stretch, but as a, as a fan of him as a player during his peak, I, I agree with everything you said and it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a little melancholic. I mean, you called your shot, you know, mid-season last year about his potential decline, but as you mentioned, it's hard to take a victory lap. You you want that shot to hit. You want to win, quote-unquote, against, you know, a solid competition. You want to see him go out there and perform, but still perform subpar relative to expectation, Not <laughs> not all of yeah. this, you know, extracurricular stuff that we've been dealing with since way, way deep in the spring.
1: Yeah. The melt, the meltdown I was rooting for was just subpar play by the Oakland Raiders offense Mm. that would really uh, piss Antonio Brown off. And then he would be suspended by the team uh, in the middle of the season. That's what I was hoping for. Uh, And what, what his has happened exceeded anything I could have reasonably projected.
2: Yeah, which unfortunately there are going to be people who hold that against you uh <laughs> relative to your take last yeah. year. But uh, you know, give the man his due credit, people. All right. Let's uh let's head on over to the Bengals and Joe Mixon. We talked about Michelle as an inefficient producer this season, but you know, Mixon's right there with him, man. He's been dealing with a high ankle sprain, which is undoubtedly a part of this, for sure. But Neither he nor Gio Bernard has produced much of anything in the Cincinnati offense, which has been extremely pass-heavy to start the year. He did put up a decent fantasy line this year, or this week, rather, with 17.5 PPR points. He still rushed in efficiently 15 times for 61 yards. Um, you know, he just added a touchdown receiving. And when I look at this team and I evaluate this situation, it's hard for me to dismiss the early season struggles as only being a product of Mixon's injury or only being a product of play calling early yeah. on. Because because when I look at the offensive line, it is horribly ravaged, and it wasn't a good unit to start the season. This is an offensive line that has struggled for the last two years. I think you know, relatively objectively, they have not performed up to expectation. They've dealt with injuries and the like. They never got to see what Jonah Williams could have provided them this year. They've been dealing with suspensions. They've been dealing with injuries since since the preseason, and they've continued to mount up. And by the time their patchwork line figures itself out, I'm I'm I don't know. I'm just I'm just concerned and anxious that the ship may have sailed on Mixon and this offense, putting together an RB1 style season given just the mountain of obstacles that they would have to hurdle to get there at this point.
1: A hundred percent agree. The injury is an issue. The offense is an issue. They're going to be very scheme heavy uh, with throwing the ball and what they've been using their running backs for, for the most part is pass blocking, which is like the lowest, the lowest form of service for a running back is, is pass blocking. Uh, And the offensive line is, Maybe the worst in the league, uh, as you mentioned, Um, he had his peak game last week and he had um, only 95 yards from scrimmage, which like that's that's good. Like there's nothing wrong with that. But as like his best game, that is not good. And, you know, how long is it going to take him to have another game like that? So I'm I'm very pessimistic on Mixon for the rest of the season. Uh, just because of the confluence of all of those factors.
2: Yeah, I'm in agreement. I, I think if it's pos- if you're in a, in a redraft league and you're a mix in owner and it's possible to sell high on him at this point, just on the strength of his 17 and a half PPR performance in week three, I would do it because unlike other backs on this list with question marks, I don't see a clear path for him to return value for the rest of the season. And on top of that, his path to doing so is still going to be an incredibly frustrating one at that.
1: Yeah. I I don't think you can trade for him. I don't think you can trade him. Like, Mm. I think he's just this asset in the market that is immovable either way. Um, Because I think if you wanted to trade for him, um, you probably wouldn't be offering enough to make the person who has him want to trade him because they invested so much in him. And if you want to trade him, It's like a similar situation. Like no one's going to want to pay what you think he's worth. Um, So I I think if you have him, you're stuck with him.
2: Like, what would you trade for him? Oh goodness me! Why have you asked me this question? What would I I (laughs) trade? I mean, I'm
1: just trying to think of what I would trade for him. And I like I don't know. Like, okay, let's link this back to Burkhead. Would you trade Burkhead for for Joe Mixon?
2: Yeah, I would. I would because I mean on on some level I just as a matter of principle or philosophy I want to I want to bet on the more athletically gifted player. But gosh, I mean it, they're in almost polar opposite realms of the universe at this point um in the fantasy football realm and their overall team situation it's incredibly difficult i mean to be fair in to mixon um the argument against mixon you could easily make against guys like james Conner, perhaps to a lesser degree but with similar numbers all things considered and also the guy we're about to talk about carry on johnson
1: yeah yeah all right well yeah let's get to johnson
2: Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it's a similar story, but we've got some different circumstances going on here. So last week, Detroit waived CJ Anderson and picked up Paul Perkins via the New York Giants. And when they dropped Anderson, that was perceived as a pretty substantial move for either carry on or Ty Johnson, which... For if you're not already referring to them as Johnson and Johnson in your fantasy leagues and in your personal life, uh, you're doing fantasy football wrong. They are forever Johnson and Johnson moving forward. Yeah. So what what we what we weren't positive about was whether Anderson's waiver from the team would result in Carry-on finally absorbing a workhorse role or Ty Johnson ascending into a meaningful, you know, complementary piece after seeing his production improve for two straight weeks. What actually happened is that Ty Johnson saw six opportunities this week and On saw 21. So the workhorse narrative seems to have won out at least slightly in week three, but On didn't do much, if anything, with those carries. He rushed 20 times for 36 yards, which is kind of a a Le'Veon Bell or a Leonard Fournette style outing for him. Uh, he salvaged his fantasy day with a touchdown, but that's still one of the worst rushing lines of the season for him, uh, or for any back for that matter. And I'm just I'm concerned for him as someone who advocated very strongly for carry-on all offseason. He finished 2018 as one of the most efficient per-touch backs in the league, but he also finished the season injured with a sprained knee. And I don't know the extent to which that sprained knee is affecting this, Part of me wants to rage against Matt Patricia as a Bill Belichick disciple for just being too cutesy and Detroit just constantly bringing me nothing but frustration and fantasy for about four consecutive seasons. I don't have clear answers here, and I'm hoping you can talk me off the ledge.
1: So uh, I don't think I'm going to add anything that really makes you feel better about carry on. Um, So the efficiency – last year on a per-touch basis, a lot of it was fueled in two different ways. So one, uh, because of his role as a pass catcher, and he's he's a very good receiver uh, for his career. He has an 82.2% catch rate, so he's good at turning targets into receptions, and then he's pretty good at turning receptions into yards. Um, so that is good, and you do want guys who contribute through the passing game. Um, the second way in which he's fueled his efficiency is by um, kind of explosive games, Uh, running the ball. Um, so if you look at his career log, he has six games where he's averaged over five yards per attempt, but then he's had these, uh, like Valley games, right? Those are his peak games. He's, he's had Valley games. Also he's averaged no games in his career where he's had between four and five yards per attempt. So it's either he's averaging over five yards per attempt or he's averaging under four yards Mm. per attempt. So seven of his 13 NFL games, uh, he's averaged like 3.7 yards per attempt at, at the most. Right. So he has these games where either he's exploding as a runner or he's totally sucking and like running into the backs of his blockers and the lions can't get anything going on offense and that's just the type of player he is. Um I think he's able to mitigate that because of his usage as a receiver, but I think he's going to be very boomer bust as a runner basically for his career. Like maybe he starts to develop some consistency, but up to this point, he's been a very boomer bust runner.
2: Yeah, that's uh that's actually really really good info there. You know, diving through the game logs to pull that out Matt because I mean as you pointed out when you have a solid you know receiving track record if if you can rely on say 3 to 4 receptions a week in PPR leagues which I think is actually pretty accurate for him last season as a rookie yeah you might not feel in your fantasy box score on a week-to-week that he had these crazy inefficient rushing days or or what have you, especially when he does add a, a touchdown on top of that. So his fantasy production last season w- was probably more consistent than his actual on-field efficiency was. So this year, it may be less of a concern about carry-on as a football player and more of a reality of, like, judging him with a different lens with higher expectation and more draft capital rather than using a flyer on him that last year and kind of taking what you can get.
1: Yeah. So I think that's true. And then also the, the bigger thing is that last year he was getting targets. He was getting 3.9 targets per game. Uh, And this year he's getting only two targets per game. So what was boosting his efficiency last year, the the pass-catching workload, that hasn't been present in the same way this year. And so I think that's why people are feeling his inefficiency as a runner a little bit more.
2: Well, Matt, that segues perfectly into the final player that I want to discuss in this podcast, and that's Todd Gurley. Oh, Lord. So low reception volume. Gurley... Um, has been one of the more consistent receiving backs for honestly the last three years. It's been a steady improvement over that time, but he has been a dynamic receiver of the football and LA has schemed him open through a series of uh, really a a great variety of different uh, screenplays over the course of the last two to three years. Right now in 2019, he only has four receptions for eight yards through three games. And <laughs> yeah. all girly owners uh, last night against the Browns finally kind of had to scratch their head at his 4.3 PPR point production showing. I mean, this is definitely... Of Valley for sure and everybody is aware of that and clearly he does not have the same usage as last season we knew this going into the year that his workload was likely going to be a bit hamstrung and sure Malcolm Brown has factored in quite a bit but I think for me the the receiving volume is more critical to his PPR status among running backs than his raw workload is per se And my bigger problem with Gurley's situation right now is when I look at the Rams offense, especially in the first half last night, it doesn't clearly resemble the offense that I watched last year. Schematically, perhaps, but the offense does not—it's pretty apparent that Sean McVay has retooled the offense to no longer run through or rely on Gurley as a core cog. They are using their wide receivers in the rushing game as much, if not more, than they ever have before— and Jared Goff's deep ball has not been there to start the season. Even his intermediate ball has been a bit twitchy to start the season. The whole offense has been relatively inefficient by their own standard. Do you have any thoughts on Gurley or the Rams' offense early so far?
1: Yeah, so uh, a few things. Yeah, the Rams' offense hasn't been as good as it was previously, and I think that is actually the the biggest um, – In terms of the running game, that's the biggest thing that's impacting Gurley. So if the Rams offense were a little bit better, uh, he would have more opportunities to score touchdowns. Uh, And so the big things going against him just in an overarching way, he's not scoring as many touchdowns and he's not getting the receiving workload. If he were at least getting the rushing touchdowns, that would mitigate what's happened with him as a runner. And I would say like this year as a runner, he looks basically like – if you if you put his game log up next to games that he's had over the past two seasons, everything looks normal. Uh just in terms of like the the number of carries he's getting. Like he had some games last year where he had, you know, like 40 rushing yards. Like that's like that happens sometimes. He was always able to save those days by scoring a touchdown and getting like eight targets. So like as a runner, everything I think is still basically normal with him. It's just that he's in an offense that isn't as good so he's not getting quite as many carries so he has 14.7 this year instead of 18.3 last year you know I think if the offense were better he'd have a couple extra carries per game and then it would basically be like yeah he's basically getting the same number of carries but so not getting as many carries because of the offense not scoring as many touchdowns because of the offense and then as you mentioned the big thing like this is the real kick in the balls is the receiving workload he's just not getting it and whatever it is Like they're not using him as well as a receiver when they bother to throw the ball to him. And maybe that's on him, but I think that's on the plays that they've run for him. It's just, it's a weird situation where he's, he's succeeding like in ways that I wasn't necessarily expecting and failing in the things I thought would kind of be locked in. Like I thought Gurley would probably still retain his receiving workload and would still be scoring touchdowns and would just have fewer carries per game. It's it's almost the exact opposite of what I thought would happen.
2: Yeah, I I'm actually right there with you and you know, similarly, when I was trying to project him going into this season, given his knee arthritis diagnosis and, and not having a clear picture of how that was going to impact his playing time for this season, I expected perhaps more inefficient numbers on average or maybe a slight reduction in his lateral movement or agility or, or what have you as a result of the pre-existing condition. But I'm going to be honest with you, having watched all three of the Rams games so far, I can't tell that he has had like a major dip in any real athletic skill set on the field. He he looks more like the girly that I would have expected last season than I expected entering this year. It's less about what he's doing when he has the ball and more about the fact that he's not getting the ball in creative offensive opportunities like we're used to.
1: Yeah, 100% agree.
2: Whew. All right, we dealt with some uh, some backfield nonsense to close the show out, but uh, all things considered, I think week three brought us kind of a a steadying force across the board for usage for a lot of different players. We got to see quite a few young quarterbacks rip it up in week three. Pat Mahomes is still grinding away. We got to see Baltimore against Kansas City in a game to kind of test their early season medal. Matt, is there anything I, that I missed or we missed that you'd like to touch on before we get out of here?
1: No, you think I uh, I think you got it. The you mentioned Mahomes there. I think the amazing thing so far this year like the story of the year in addition to Lamar Jackson and how good he's looked, the story of the year is Mahomes and the fact that he hasn't regressed at all. Like he's he's just as dynamic as he was last year, maybe even more so. Um, I mean, I think he's clearly the front runner for the MVP right now. Uh, absolutely amazing what he's doing. It's, it's a, a thrill to be watching the NFL
2: at this point in time. Well, there you have it folks. That's going to do it for today's show. Again, please rate review and subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on Twitter at R a Collinsworth and at Matt F the Oracle, be sure to check out RotoViz. And if there's any topics you want us to discuss or questions you'd like for us to answer, send an email to rotavizradio at gmail.com. And until next time, remember it's not a fantasy if you believe it.